0: Good morning to you! Over the centuries, the gift of tongues has elicited greater commotion, confusion, and controversy than perhaps any other spiritual gift. Saints generally find that we are tongue-tied instead of edified when we tackle this trippy, tricky subject. To avoid, uh, so, so many seek to avoid this topic altogether, hoping it will kind of just go away. But for two Sundays, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 14, which is one of the most controversial passages in all the Bible on the subject of tongues. This Sunday, we're going to look at biblical tongues generally, and then next time we're together in a couple weeks, we are going to consider Paul's arguments for prophecy over tongues specifically. I I want to begin by saying that there are wonderful saints who deeply love Jesus, who have very firm convictions on this subject, and they're often different than the other brother's convictions. So, I want you to understand that we love you, and we are in no way trying to devalue any saint in their position. At the same time, we want to take a clear-eyed survey of the Scriptures to see what the Bible says and indeed what the Bible does not say about biblical tongues. And so to do that, we're going to need to leave our traditions and our emotions and our preconceptions at the door. And we're going to instead let the whole counsel of God be our guide and our time together today. And so if you would turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians 14... 1 Corinthians 14, and as you turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word in prayer. Lord Jesus, we invite you as Lord of the church to speak to us. Your Holy Spirit has inspired your Holy Scripture, and it tells us in the pastoral epistles that the job of the teaching elder is to preach the Word in season and out of season, to do so with with patience and careful instruction. Uh, You tell us that we ought not hold back the whole counsel of God. And so for many of us, we have only picked up little strings and sniglets of information on this subject. We have encountered individuals with strong opinions one way or the other. We have been in different traditions that have upheld those opinions in one way or another. And often, emotions run high. For some, this is a very personal, spiritual practice. For others, this is a source of, of concern and consternation. And so we pray, Lord, today that we would be saturated in the Word of God. As we look at every single Scripture that deals with biblical tongues, may we leave having understood the whole counsel of God. May we be charitable to one another and yet biblical in the positions that we hold. I pray that this would be a sermon that generates great light and not just heat. May it not lead to friction, but may it lead to a greater understanding of what the Scriptures clearly say. We pray this in the name of Jesus, whom we love. Amen. So the Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 14, it says, Pursue love, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophecy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands Him, but He utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophecies speaks to people uh, for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophecies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more, to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? for you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say, Amen. your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nonetheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, the outsider or unbeliever will enter and will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophecy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all and he is called to account by all and the secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers... When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two, or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let others weigh what is said, and if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophecy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. As in all the churches of the saints... The women should keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. And if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid the speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Now there's a whole bunch of things in this passage that we'll have to unpack over two separate Sundays, but today we're going to tackle one subject, and that is biblically what are tongues and how should it work in the church. Now there are three books in the New Testament that deal with tongues. Uh, They are the book of Mark, the book of Acts, and right here in 1 Corinthians. So the first thing we must do is we must define biblical tongues. And that's going to take you to point one on your outlines today. Point one, if you're following along in your news and notes, there's a thing to click each week and you can print out uh, the outline. Unfortunately, we don't have a bulletin because we're not together. But you can get that outline each week by going to news and notes on Friday, clicking and printing it out at home. Otherwise, you can just follow along with your pen. So the first thing in our outline is the question, what are biblical tongues? And we're going to start with the first place tongues are mentioned canonologically in the New Testament, and that is, what are tongues in the book of Mark? Now, Mark 16 has a disputed ending that's not found in the earliest and best manuscripts for the Gospel of Mark. And in that disputed ending is the following statement. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In My name they will cast out demons, and they will speak in new tongues. Now, whether or not Mark should include this verse, and most conservatives would say it should not, uh, we have nothing to conclude from this verse because it doesn't define tongues. It simply says they're new tongues. And that could be interpreted as new tongues as in an entirely new language or rather a language new to that speaker. So it doesn't give us any clarity at all. And so to define tongues, the best place to go is the book of Acts, the next canonological occurrence of the word Tongues. And indeed, many scholars would say the first occurrence, because the end of that Mark passage is probably not uh, originally in the text. So, the first time that this seems to appear in Scripture is letter B on your outlines. What are tongues in the book of Acts? All right. So, turn with me in the Word of God to Acts chapter 2. That's to the left of 1 Corinthians. In Acts chapter 2, we're going to go to a few places where tongues are mentioned. The first time it's mentioned is when the church is birthed at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So the Word of God says this in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived and they were all together in one place, that is the 120 that had gathered and they were praying And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what does speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gives utterance mean? Well, the Bible explains it. There's no confusion. There's only gospel clarification. So how does the Word of God describe what biblical tongues biblically looks like? Look at verse 5, and you see the Bible's very clear description. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, You see, these people had come from the Feast of Pentecost and they had come from all over the diaspora, all these other regions and nations and and tongues, but they were Jews coming to celebrate the Jewish festival of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit broke out among the Jewish believers that were gathered praying, okay? So now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered. Why? Because each of those people from all of those places was hearing them speak in his own newly adopted language of the diaspora. And they were amazed and they were astonished saying, are not all these speaking Galileans? That is, they knew the accent of the country bumpkins from the fishing village. They knew these were Jews of Galilee. And yet, how is it we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and and Egypt and parts of Libya and belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. Both Jews and proselytes. That is, ethnic Jews and people that had converted to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs. We hear them Telling in our own native new human language, the language we hear back home, we hear them proclaiming the mighty works of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the first clear description of tongues in the Bible, and usually when the Bible uh, introduces something for the first time, it's a very important introduction that helps you form a baseline for the rest of the times you deal with it. So, the very first description of tongues in the Bible is that tongues are very clearly a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit enabling a believer to speak in an already existing but previously unlearned by that person human language. So, I never learned to speak in Chinese, but the Holy Spirit came upon me and I began to praise God in Chinese through the Holy Spirit and someone could hear that in Chinese and they understood because they spoke Chinese. So the next time someone speaks in tongues is in Acts chapter 10 and verse 44. So turn with me to Acts 10 and verse 44. And the Bible says in Acts 10 and verse 44, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the Word. And the believers, now listen to this phrase, from among the circumcised. That is, the Jewish believers who had come with Peter, where they come from? Okay, so they had come from Jerusalem. They were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was being poured out even to the Gentiles. And the Jewish background believers could not believe it. For they were hearing those Gentiles who had just gotten saved. They were what? They were speaking in tongues. And they were extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people, these Gentiles, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to remain for some days. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea, the Jews, heard that the Gentiles had also received the Word of God. How did they know for certain that God was including the Gentiles? Well, the, the, the Gentile Christians were able to do something supernaturally that only they had seen in Acts chapter chapter 2 when the church was birthed, when they had seen The gift of tongues. So the Gospel came to the Gentiles and and they too spoke in tongues. The same kind of tongues that the believers immediately recognized they had already seen in the past in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. So what we see in Acts 10 must be what we saw in Acts 2. This must have been the supernatural ability by the Holy Spirit for a person to speak in a previously unlearned but already existing human language. I want you to notice who was the target recipient of this signed gift. It says, to the circumcised among them. That is, to the Jewish background believer, uh, God was saying something. He was saying, hey friend, I'm engrafting the wild vine, the Gentiles, into the tree. And that's something they would have otherwise been very resistant to. No, no, no. This is us. Jesus is our Messiah. He, yes, but He's also the Savior of the world. And it was promised way back in Genesis 12, but it was easily forgotten. We have ethnocentric bias. And, and, and so the Jews could have said, well, no, the gospel is just for us and not for you. But then through tongues, through seeing what only the Holy Spirit could do, they said, yeah, the Gospel is for you too. Now the final time we see folks speaking in tongues is in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, if you turn there in your Bibles. Uh, Acts chapter 19, seven chapters later, the Bible says this. And it happened. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and he came to Ephesus. And he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. That is, these were people who had only heard that John said repent for the kingdom of God is near, the Messiah is coming. They hadn't met the Messiah yet. They had repented in preparation for the Messiah, but they had not yet heard of who that Messiah was. And Paul said, look, John baptized with a baptism of of general repentance, uh, telling the people to believe in the One who is to come after him, and here's who that one is. That one is Jesus. And he began to share with them the Gospel that the Messiah is in Jesus Christ. Uh, These folks in Ephesus were were believers, but, but they are not yet believers in Christ. They were believers in a coming Messiah, the one preached by John the Baptist. They had only experienced John's baptism of repentance. And that was in preparation for a coming Messiah. So Paul completed what they did not know. He gave them the peace that they had yet to understand. Paul preached the good news that the Messiah has come and the Messiah is Jesus Christ. Verse 5, On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about twelve Men in all, And so, here we see in Acts 19 that just general repentance to God in general post-ascension is not enough. That we must believe in Jesus specifically. And when we do, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in me and you. Now I want you to remember that these followers of John the Baptist over in Ephesus were almost certainly Jewish people. Why? Because it was the Jewish people who were lining up to be baptized under John the Baptist. In fact, that's the very reason the religious rulers did not like John the Baptist because they thought that only the unclean Gentiles who converted needed to have this ceremonial baptismal washing. We're already Jews. We're already good enough. And so, do you see, even here in Acts 19, that you have tongues as a sign to who? To the Jewish background person. That's important because we're going to hear more about that in Corinthians. Now, the only other place in all of the Bible that deals with tongues, so there's three significant places in Acts, Acts 2 being the most important because it's the most clear and it's the first time it shows up. Mark is probably not in the canon and doesn't explain anything uh, other than saying they're new tongues, which is not sufficient in description. So, let's go to C on your outlines. What are tongues in 1 Corinthians. And tongues is going to be mentioned in chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14. In 1 Corinthians 12, there is no explanation of this gift. Only, the Bible says there are various kinds of tongues. That doesn't help us because that could fit either... previously existing human languages you didn't know, Chinese um, and and, and Shona and Indibele and and, and so forth. Or it could be new tongues as in the tongues of angels and men or in the idea of a personal private prayer language. So so that doesn't help us. What about 1 Corinthians 13? 1 Corinthians 13 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And so if you read that the first time, you might posit... "Mm, Maybe there are tongues of men and there are also tongues of angels. But you need to remember the context of 1 Corinthians 13's statement. All right? So any text without context is pretext and you make it say things that wasn't intended. 1 Corinthians 13 is speaking in what's called hyperbolic negation. He's speaking in hyperbole to explain something that isn't. The context says, even if I had all knowledge, which, of course, no one has this side of eternity. But I have not love. All that knowledge wouldn't help me. It's the language of hyperbolic negation. It is not the language of true description, like this actually exists. No, 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 this doesn't exist, but even if you had it, it wouldn't matter if you didn't have love. It's like saying, even if I could fly around the room and shoot fire from my fingertips, but I had not love, those sensational things would be nothing. Nothing because I don't have love. So 1 Corinthians 13.1 is not saying somebody can speak in the language of angels. Indeed, if you look in the Bible, you're going to see every time in Scripture that an angel spoke or sung, they did it in a normal human language the recipient could always understand. Even when the angels are speaking and singing in heaven, they're not speaking to a person, they're speaking to God, The person that was hearing it understood it. Uh, We see this in the Old Testament. In Isaiah, the angels were singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the prophet Isaiah could understand it. Because apparently it was in the language of men, not angels. In the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, you have the Apostle John. And he has numerous glimpses and visions of heaven. And there are angels singing and speaking in the book. And every time they sang or spoke, John understood what the angel was singing or saying. Why? Because the angels apparently spoke not in the tongues of angels, but in the tongues of men. So, 1 Corinthians 13 is is no help in defining biblical tongues. So that leaves basically all of the discussion of the question on Acts 2, where it's super clear, and Acts 14, which is where there may not be the same level of clarity, and we're going to try and bring that today. Acts 2 is completely clear. Tongues, in Acts 2, is unmistakably the supernatural endowment of the Holy Spirit, a a God-given ability to a believer to speak in a previously unlearned by them, but nonetheless existing human language. But some saints will say that, that tongues in 1 Corinthians 14 is different. That tongues in 1 Corinthians 14 is what's called an ecstatic utterance. Um, It's something you don't control. It just sort of comes out of you. Um, If someone was hearing an ecstatic utterance, it would sound unintelligible. It might sound like gibberish. But it is supposedly, this is their contention, that 1 Corinthians 14 is speaking of people, of Christians speaking in a personal private prayer language just between them and God. And this is Arabic number one in our outlines today. There are two options when you look at 1 Corinthians 14, and they both cannot be true, but let's look at the two. The first option is that tongues in Corinthians are ecstatic utterances, or another way to say that is that they are a personal, private prayer language. So, one way of looking at 1 Corinthians 14 is that tongues in 1 Corinthians 14 is totally different from everywhere else in the Bible. It's a personal, private prayer language that seems like an ecstatic utterance. And they go to some verses to try to say that's where we see this. It isn't like they're without verses. They go to verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. They go to verse 9. So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what's said? For you will be speaking into the air. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Nevertheless, in church, I'd rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So, so some read those verses and they, they conclude that tongues are something just between a believer and his God, and, and that no one else could understand it. It's something that happens when your mind is, is disengaged. Indeed, it's unfruitful. And other saints, well, they read the same passage and they say no. No. Uh, we see exactly what we see in Acts 2. We just see a different context in Acts uh, 2 than we see in Acts 14. So this brings you to the other view. It's Arabic number 2 on your outlines. Arabic number 2 is this. Tongues in Corinthians are the supernatural ability to speak in previously unlearned existing human languages. So you have two options. Either tongues in Corinthians 14 are the same as Acts, That would be point two. Or tongues are totally different. They're a personal private prayer language and ecstatic utterance. So the people that say, no, the tongues in Corinthians are the same as the tongues in Acts, they also point to Corinthians. Not to Acts. They can point to Corinthians to prove this. Look at verses 10 to 14. In verse 10, there are doubtlessly many different languages in the world. Where are these languages, friends? In the world. They're not in heaven. They're not of the angels. They're in the world. Oh, Well, who speaks languages in this world? Humans. Oh. So, in the world, and none is without meaning. That is, every language that you're ever going to speak is never gibberish. It's always something that has meaning, and it's a meaning that can be understood in the world. Hmm. Verse 11, But if I do not know the meaning of a language, that is, if I don't speak Chinese, if I don't speak Shana, if I don't speak Tonga, then I will be a foreigner to the speaker. And therefore, the foreigner is a speaker to me. That is, if I don't speak the language that they're speaking supernaturally, then I'm going to have a problem. So Paul says, so with yourselves, since you're eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in what builds up the church. That is, look, if there's nobody that speaks this language, don't speak that language in church that Sunday. So 1 Corinthians 14 is clearly speaking of languages that are in the world, not in heaven. God's Word says that all these languages, all have meaning. Nothing is gibberish. This kind of language is is native to some people in the world and not native to others. That sounds like an existing human language that would be foreign to someone who doesn't speak it. So the question becomes, here's the question, is there a way to harmonize the clear teaching of the book of Acts with the somewhat less clear teaching of 1 Corinthians 14? Because we always let the more clear interpret the less clear. Is there a way to harmonize them? Yes, there is. There is a way to take 1 Corinthians 14 and Acts and put them together and they hold together. There's another way where you have to say they're totally different and I can't explain it and I don't know why and it doesn't meet some of the purposes that God lays out for spiritual gifts. Those are your two options. Those are your only two options. Let's look at the option that harmonizes the text as we have done with every other scripture when we've walked through all the books that we've been going through together. So, The question is, is there a way to harmonize the statements of 1 Corinthians 14 with the statements of Acts 2 in particular? Yes. If you understand that the situation in the book of Acts concerns times when people spoke in biblical tongues and present hearing them were native language speakers who understood that language. And so, the person spoke in tongues, and the person who was an Arabian, the person who was a Parthenian, the person who was a Mede, the person who was a so-and-so, they heard in their own language that language. However, the situation in Corinth is different. There's no native language speaker. You're speaking all of a sudden in Chinese through the power of the Holy Spirit, but there isn't a person who speaks Chinese in the church in Corinth that Sunday. And since there's no native language speaker present for that particular language being spoken, The Holy Spirit forbids you to speak in tongues in church unless someone is there who can supernaturally interpret it. There's nobody there who can naturally interpret it. Different situation between Acts and Corinthians. Now, if that is true, then this is how 1 Corinthians 14.2 would perfectly harmonize with Acts 2. And it would harmonize like this. For the one who speaks in a previously unlearned existing human language but no one is present who speaks that language, then that person speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him. He utters mysteries in the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 14.9 would harmonize with Acts 2 like this, So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech in a previously unlearned existing human language, but no one is present who speaks that language, then that speech is not intelligible. And how will anyone there at church know what's said? You'll be speaking into the air. 1 Corinthians 14, 14 harmonizes perfectly with Acts chapter 2 like this. For if I pray in a previously unlearned existing human language, but no one is present who speaks that language, well, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Nobody knows what I'm saying. I don't know what I'm saying. Why? Because even I don't know what I'm saying. Equally, verse 19 can harmonize with Acts 2, and it would harmonize like this. Nevertheless, in church, I'd rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a previously unlearned existing human language, but no one is present who speaks that language this Sunday. So there is only one way, my friends, uh, to interpret 1 Corinthians 14 that perfectly lines up with the clear teaching of Acts 2. And there's one way that does not. Those are your options. Those are your only options. There are no other options. Now this becomes all the clearer when you carefully translate verse 5. The ESV says, verse 5, Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets. So the church may be built up. Now when you read that in your English Bible, you're going to assume that someone interpreting is anyone. But if you read that in your Greek Bible, it's not that way exactly. Um, How would a tongue speaker know that he can't speak in tongues if he doesn't know that anyone else is present who speaks in tongues? How can you forbid something he doesn't know the answer to? Well, Paul utterly forbids speaking in tongues in a church service if no interpreter is present. So how could you know unless you were the one with the gift of interpreting That tongue. And that's exactly what the Greek in verse 5 seems to be saying. The Greek does not mention any other agent other than the speaker in tongues as the one who interprets that tongue. Okay? So, So the agent who speaks in tongues seems to be the same agent as the one who ought to be interpreting that tongue. To the people, which is why many of our other versions translate differently than the ESV, the New American, or excuse me, the uh, the New International Version, the King James Version, the New English Translation, the Christian Standard Bible. They all translate verse five, just like the New American Standard, which is pretty much taking you where the Greek says more closely. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless He, as in he himself, interprets. So that the church may receive edifying. So unless you knew you could interpret this tongue for those present who could not understand this existing human language, you were not supposed to speak in that language at church because it wouldn't edify anyone. No one would be built up. There would just be confusion. If you could interpret that language... Or if somebody was present and they were a native language speaker of that language, then of course everyone would be edified by what you had to say. But if not, you were not to proceed. This brings us to Roman numeral 2 in our outlines. How can you verify a tongue is from God? How can you verify a tongue is from God? And this is important because there's a number of Scriptures that tell us that we need to be careful to be a Berean to compare Scripture with Scripture. The Apostle Paul warns us all in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 19 to 22, Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Everything. Everything that happens in church, you should test against the Word of God. And hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. The Apostle John piles on. He says in 1 John 4.1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So how can any of us follow those passages in regards to tongues? How could anyone test a personal private prayer language that no one else can verify? But it's really simple to test Someone speaking in an existing human language, isn't it? All you have to do is translate what was said and have a native language speaker tell you what they said. If what they said in their tongue lines up with what Scripture says, well, then that's great. Everything's fine. But if they say something like we're warned about in the introduction of our section on spiritual gifts, the beginning of chapter 12, well, then we would need to let go of that because it's not from God. Remember the beginning of chapter 12. The Bible says this, speaking of spiritual gifts. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit says unbiblical stuff like Jesus is a curse. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Spirit. Ah, So, people are saying all kinds of things, but the only things that are biblical are the things that are actually corroborating with the Bible. So, in addition to verification, we have to remember the God-given purpose of spiritual gifts. Which brings us to point three in our outlines. What is the purpose of spiritual gifts in general? And that would be true of tongues in particular. What is the purpose of spiritual gifts in general and how would that pertain to our understanding of tongues in particular? Well, the Bible is crystal clear on the purpose of our spiritual gifts. It's found in in verse 7 of chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, the Bible says, to each believer is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what purpose? For the common good. For the common good. Every spiritual gift is not given primarily for you, but given for the body of Christ. And since God's given purpose of any spiritual gift is always mutual edification and never personal gratification, This poses a seemingly insurmountable problem to the notion that tongues are a personal, private prayer language, doesn't it? If if, if tongues are always for mutual, or if if gifts are always for mutual, how could tongues be only personal? And this brings us to point four as we move from the purpose of spiritual gifts in general to the purpose of tongues specifically. Because the Bible not only tells us how gifts in general function for mutual edification, but they're going to tell us what the point of tongues is. And it's not necessarily what many people today are saying the point of tongues is. What is the biblical purpose for the gift of tongues? Number four in your outlines. What is the biblical purpose for the gift of tongues? When Paul wants to answer this, he takes these Jewish background believers back to the Jewish Bible, back to the Old Testament. Paul, the rabbi trained under Gamaliel, knows his Bible well. And so he goes back to the law. He goes back to a promise many Jewish background believers may have forgotten that God had said. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 21, in the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, that is the Jewish people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and an outsider or unbeliever enters, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. He's quoting from chapter 28 of prophet Isaiah. He's quoting from Isaiah 28, 11. And this is where the Lord Himself promises a judgment on the Jewish people for rejecting all the prophets God had been sending for all those years. Come back to Me. Come back to Me with your whole heart. Don't just follow the formalism, but actually worship Me as the one true God. And, and He sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet and they reject it. And since they won't listen to God speaking in their mother tongue, Biblical Hebrew, God said, I'm going to get your attention. I'm going to speak to you through foreigners' tongues. Namely, the native foreign tongues of the Assyrian captors to the north and the Babylonian captivity that will take the south. Isaiah 28, starting at verse 11, says, For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. Which people? The Jewish people. To whom He has said, this is rest. Give rest to the weary, and this is repose. But they would not hear. God wanted to bless them and give them rest, but instead they had strife and difficulty because they wouldn't listen to the Word of God. And the Word of the Lord will then be to them precept upon precept upon precept, and line upon line upon line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and be snared and be taken. God was going to say a little, and He was going to say it through foreigners, and that was what they were going to get because they wouldn't listen when He spoke clearly and repeatedly through His prophets. So, the purpose of biblical tongues, according to the Bible, is for unbelievers. That's 100% clear in the text. There's no mistake Paul says, hey, tongues is not for believers, it's for unbelievers. But if tongues in 1 Corinthians is a personal private prayer language of a believer, between that believer and God alone, how can the biblical purpose of tongues be achieved? Or unbelievers. Because that's the point of tongues. I think the answer is it can't. Secondly, we have to look at what kind of unbeliever is this supposed to be a sign for? And it seems to be Paul saying it's for Jewish unbelievers in particular. That was the promise of Isaiah 28. Now, if you think back to how tongues happened in the book of Acts, you're going to see every time it's Jews catching a clue about what God is about to do through tongues. Think back at the, at when tongues first occurred at Pentecost unbelieving Jews, people who did not yet understand that Jesus is the Messiah, they came to the Feast of Pentecost because they were good, observant Jews. And while they were there, the 120 began to speak in tongues. And they heard them praising God in their own language simultaneously and they realized something was happening and a great number of them got saved. It was the Diaspora Jew who was at the feast who heard in his new native tongue of where he has been taken away because of disobedience. And it got their attention to realize the Messiah was among them, that that Messiah was Jesus Christ. Alright? Is that not basically the promise of Isaiah 28? Being lived out in a new day, in a new age, that God would speak through a foreign tongue and get their attention to what He has to say. I want you to think about that because praise God, everything that was lost at the Tower of Babel, God had to confuse our language because we want to do religion our own way and we made a big high ziggurat kind of thing that we were going to reach up to heaven and show God and we we stacked bricks and mortar and tar and we made this thing, look at how good we are, God. God has to look down and go, what are they building down there? You read the story. Man's really impressed. God's not so impressed. And so God confuses their language. And he partially puts it back in order through Jesus at Pentecost. Through the Holy Spirit, language that was confused was brought into clarity and people could understand each other. And what did they understand? The one true God in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit took confusion and turned it to understanding. and led to a response that was God-glorifying. Okay, so if tongues are the supernatural Spirit-given ability to speak in a previously unlearned but already existing human language, why don't we see people doing that today? Why is it when people speak In tongues today, never is it someone speaking spontaneously in Chinese to Chinese people, particularly Jewish background Chinese people. That brings us to point five in our outlines. Roman numeral five. Does the Bible teach that all spiritual gifts will always continue? Does the Bible teach that all of the spiritual gifts will always continue all the way into the end of the church age, or even indeed in through the millennium and eternity. That brings us to letter A. The Bible teaches that the gift of apostle, with a big A, has ceased. The Bible teaches that the gift of apostle, with a capital A, not a general sent one like a missionary, but in the sense of the twelve, or if you want to be technical, maybe the thirteen because of Matthias, maybe the fourteen because of Paul, but then you've got to subtract Judas, and your math gets a little shaky, but in the sense of the twelve, Apostle with a big A. The Bible teaches that that gift has ceased. Romans and Corinthians speak of God's gifts to people in His church, but but Ephesians 4 speaks of God's gifts of people to the church. And the Bible says in Ephesians 4, 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift Therefore, it says, when He ascended on high, He led host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. So Jesus ascended, and He gave gifts to the church through the Holy Spirit, just like He promised. And here are those gifts. Gifts of individuals, verse 11. And He gave apostles and prophets and evangelists, and shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, the first ministry in the list is the gift of apostle. Is the gift of apostle in the sense, the narrow sense of the twelve, still in operation today? And the biblical answer to that is unequivocally no. There's no doubt about that. That's No. When Judas hung himself, the believers in the book of Acts remembered that it had been written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be one, let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So they determined the criteria for apostleship. And they concluded an apostle had to be someone who accompanied Jesus. Specifically, verse 22, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken from us, one of these men must become a witness with us To His resurrection. That was the criteria. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.8 says He is the last Apostle and that His appointment was unusual. 1 Corinthians 15.8 says that the resurrected Jesus, last of all, He appeared also to me as to one untimely born. That is, there will be no one else like that. He was an unusual calling of an Apostle. But he had seen the resurrected Christ, hadn't he? Which was one of the requirements of being an apostle. He saw the resurrected Christ when he was meeting him in the Damascus Road experience. So if someone is an apostle today, he has to be 2,000 years old. Does anyone meet that criterion? No one meets that criterion. That means we know for certain that at least one gift has ceased. The gift of apostle, big A. And that brings us to point B. The Bible promises the gifts of tongues and prophecy and knowledge will one day cease also. The Bible promises that the gift of tongues and prophecy and knowledge one day will cease also. It's very clear in our last chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 8, love never ends. That's going to go all the way to eternity. But as for prophecies, they're going to pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. Different verb, different tense. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Same verb, same tense as prophecies. Prophecies and knowledge are going to end the same way. Tongues are going to end a different way. For we know in part, and we prophecy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, what's the perfect when the perfect comes? Now, some think that the perfect was the coming of the New Testament. Most scholars don't. Some think it's the return of Christ at the rapture. There are many who hold that position. Some others think it's the coming of the final, ultimate, eternal state. But we know this. And we know this with certainty. At some point, the Bible promises tongues, knowledge, and prophecy will cease, pass away. And yet love will carry on forever. Now, Why is that? That, That's because whenever we go to be with Jesus ultimately in the eternal state, we're going to exist forever in a perfect love relationship with our perfect loving God who Himself is love. And that love will never, ever be broken. All right. But friends, the need for tongues will have passed. The need for special knowledge and prophecy will have ceased. For we shall see the Lord face to face and we won't need... These things. Which brings us to letter C. Letter C The Bible promises the gift of tongues will cease itself. The Bible promises the gift of tongues will cease itself. Look at verse 8 Love never ends. As for prophecies, they're going to pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So now, interestingly, the gifts of knowledge and prophecy, the Bible says, will pass away. And that is the verb kat ar gethes And it means that these two gifts, knowledge and prophecy, are going to become inoperative. They're going to become useless. You won't need them anymore and they'll cease being. They'll, they'll pass away. But the Bible uses a different word for what's going to happen to tongues. Different word entirely. In the Greek, when it says that tongues will cease, not pass away, it is the verb pasontai. And it means that it's going to end temporally. That is, it's going to end at a point in time. So knowledge and prophecy, well, they're going to become useless because we can then see Christ face to face. So we wouldn't need knowledge and prophecy. We can go to Christ directly face to face. But tongues... Well, they're going to end because they were always designed to be temporary. Not only does the Bible use a different verb regarding what happens to tongues versus prophecy or knowledge, but it even changes the tense, which is going to greatly change the meaning. You see, knowledge and property, uh, prophecy will pass away, and that verb, both times... For both knowledge and prophecy, that verb is in what's called the passive tense. It means that something outside of knowledge and prophecy is going to cause them to pass away. And, and that, that's almost certainly the return of Christ in some way. That is, that, is that, that Christ shows up and we don't need knowledge and we don't need prophecy because we have Christ face to face. We can ask those questions directly and we'll see what we have never seen. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. We'll see, we'll hear. There'll be no barrier. That's not the way the Bible linguistically deals with tongues. The verb for tongues is not in the passive voice of some outside actor stopping it. It's in the middle voice. Now, Greek in the middle voice signifies that the subject of the verb is acting on itself. Let me put it this way. Here's a passive. All right? This is how knowledge and, 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 and prophecy will pass away. The passive is this. The boy was hit by the ball. What hit the boy? Something outside of itself. He was hit by the ball he was passive he was just standing there and the ball hit him the boy was hit by the ball but when you get the middle voice this is what it is i'm doing the action on myself i hit myself i am doing the action on myself so quite literally according to the greek tongues will cease now here it is themselves tongues will cease themselves now jesus tells us that every jot and every tittle of scripture down to the least stroke of the pen is inspired by god So the Holy Spirit likely meant something intentional by intentionally using a very different verb and a very different tense for tongues ceasing over and against the passing away of knowledge and prophecy. It would seem literally that for tongues, they're going to cease on their own. They will cease themselves. Which brings us to point six on our outlines. What does history demonstrate regarding the gift of tongues? What does history demonstrate regarding the gift of tongues? Now, history is not our primary driver in our time today. The Bible is. We've gone very carefully through all the passages. We've only found one way for the two of Acts and Corinthians to harmonize. It happens to be the way that means that the gift is not for your personal benefit. It happens to be uh, such that it would cease itself. All these things. But what does history say? Does history work for that or against that? And, and so while this is only peripheral to the central issue of Scripture, it can still give us some illumination. Are we on the wrong track? Or are we on the right track? Church history tells us that by the days of Origen and Cyprian, and that is by the late 2nd or early 3rd century, Origen and Cyprian say tongues had ceased in the church. It was not happening. They didn't see it happening. It was gone. Then you have a little bit later, writers like Chrysostom and Augustine and Aquinas. And they write in the most clear terms in their writings, it's unmistakable, that tongues had vanished from practice and was not seen any longer in the church. Now, there were some heretical groups in church history, uh, like the Montanists, who supposedly spoke in tongues, but they got a lot of things wrong about Jesus as well. And there are questionable groups in more modern times, such as the Quakers and the Shakers who claim to speak in tongues. And certainly there's been an absolute explosion of people claiming to speak in tongues since the Azusa Pacific revivals in particular at the turn of the last century. And millions of Christians today, particularly in Latin America and Africa, but but all over the world, but particularly in those two regions, claim to speak in tongues. Here's what's interesting. In all of those groups, okay, in the Montanists, the Quakers, the Shakers, the Pentecostals, the Charismatics, no one ever speaks, ever, in a previously unlearned existing human language. Nobody. Nobody seems to be able to do what all the saints were able to do every time in the book of Acts and probably in the book of Corinthians. Also, modern tongues never seems to be for the purpose of helping Jewish unbelievers receive their Savior. It's always and only, when we see it today, it's always and only ecstatic utterances. It's always and only a personal private prayer language. And it's also interesting that as we study religious history, we find that before Pentecost, there were pagan groups who spoke in ecstatic utterances. We talked about Dionysius and her cult and some others and some other sermons. And those people believed it was an ecstatic language between them and God. It was a personal private prayer language no one else could interpret. But Acts says it's a human language that helps people learn of God. Anthropologists have documented there are non-Christian groups in world history who speak in ecstatic utterances. There's some shaman groups and some Hindu groups and some other groups. And it's always a personal private prayer language. And that's very problematic because one of the things about tongues when it happened in Acts is it showed people immediately, this was God, this was God moving, and we're hearing about Jesus. And that's difficult if what is happening in the pagan world is happening in the Christian world, but it's not happening if you're suddenly able to speak in a foreign language that praises God in line with Scripture. So that brings us to our last point today, point seven. What do I do with all this? What do I do with all this? How should we handle tongues today in the church? And this is where the rubber meets the road. And the first thing we need to have are the unmovable biblical restrictions. That is, God has said you can do this and not this, and that's what we have to do. There's no options there. Here are some things that are non-negotiable. And they come from verses 27 and verses 28. Biblical non-negotiables. If anyone speaks in a tongue, that is in church, let there be only two or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and God. So let's unpack those things. Number one, if there's going to be tongues in a church service, only two at the most three people can do it. They don't do it all together. They do it one after the other, and there has to be an interpreter. If not... You're not supposed to speak in tongues. The Bible forbids it. Now, sadly, I have rarely seen those three rules ever applied in the places that I've seen people speak in tongues. And I've been in numerous contexts where that's occurred, uh, and I don't create a fuss or a problem. It just bothers me that, wait a minute, I know that the Bible says we can't do this, so why are we doing this? Maybe we're not doing what the Bible's saying. So what do we do then with verse 39? Because very quickly, someone who's very much a pro Uh, ecstatic utterances and personal private language would say, wait a minute, do not forbid the speaking in tongues. It says that right there, you can't forbid the speaking in tongues. Well, let me just remind us contextually that verse 39 would be perfectly expected in Paul's day when he wrote this letter to Corinth because tongues had yet to cease themselves. In fact, Paul says, I speak in tongues more than anyone else. Of course he does. He's going and he's speaking where? He's going to different contexts where people speak different languages. And so it's totally, he's a missionary. Uh, It totally makes sense that he would be able to do that. And he's going to the Jew first, so Jewish background believers hearing it in their native language. makes total sense if Paul's doing an Acts 2 kind of tongues. However, we must consider, if biblical tongues have ceased themselves, which seems to be evident from about the late second century forward in church history, then this injunction would no longer be for us today. Uh, For instance, the Bible had told us to to, to worship on on the uh, seventh day. And yet, when Jesus resurrected, the church moved that date in the Bible, it's approved in the Bible, to the Lord's Day. Why? Because something new superseded it. Uh, It used to be that we'd bring a a, a ram or a lamb or or, or a pigeon uh, to the temple and sacrifice it. But now, through the blood of Christ, we don't do that. And so, if tongues have ceased today, then well, that injunction would no longer be true. So now we come to some practical considerations. Letter B on your outlines. Practical considerations. The first practical consideration is this. If someone speaks in a previously unlearned but existing human language, if tomorrow one of you comes up to me and you start speaking in Chinese and you don't speak Chinese, you start speaking in Shona, you start speaking in uh, uh, Swahili, and and you're praising God according to the Bible and you didn't learn that language, I'm going to say, well, praise God, you're speaking in tongues and this is great. That seems exactly like what I know for certain is biblical tongues, especially if you do it and it helps point Jewish background people back to Jesus, then I'm going to say, wow. But if you're just speaking in an ecstatic utterance that no one can decipher, I think we're probably wise to be skeptical, friends, and I know that's a hard teaching for some, but I encourage you to listen to the totality of the scriptures we've presented today. So, one of the things you need to look at when you look at practical considerations is we're not the first Christians to ever have to deal with this thing. Everything, there's nothing new under the sun. So how have other godly, Scripture-based people dealt with this subject? And so, um, I worked for a particular evangelical ministry, and we were a non-charismatic ministry, but we weren't an anti-charismatic ministry, and there's a difference. What does that mean practically? Well, it meant that if a brother or sister spoke in tongues even if it was a personal private prayer language or ecstatic utterance. That was something they were welcome to do in their private prayers, but they weren't supposed to do in the public gatherings, that is, corporately. It was something they could personally practice. In fact, anyone in the group could personally practice it. But it was not something that we would propagate as a ministry. That is, we agreed to disagree. We were more united in the Gospel than we were on the trivial. And so we would agree that we would not teach and we would not encourage This practice in the churches we planted, in the Bible studies we led, and so on and so forth. Now, how does that work with Calvary Church? Well, we're a hundred-year-old church, and and Calvary has historically been a non-charismatic church, but not necessarily an anti-charismatic church. Meaning, if a brother or sister desired to speak in tongues, in their private prayers at home, Calvary didn't forbid them, and yet we didn't practice it in our worship services. We didn't practice it in our small group gatherings nor do we ever advance it in our teachings, Bible studies, and preaching. If you have a different understanding of tongues, and there are many wonderful brothers who do, please know we love you, and you're welcome to worship with us here at Calvary. But just as we have a clear position on other doctrines, we have a position on this doctrine. So, Calvary Church has a position uh, the Evangelical Free Church's doctrinal statement from the original founding in the 50s is that Christ will return premillennially. And, and we understand that different Christians have different beliefs. Some have a postmillennial. Some have a amillennial, right? Some have a panmillennial. It's all going to pan out. <laughs> but Calvary Church, if you want to become a member, has a premillennial conviction. And there are some of you who are here and you worship with us every Sunday and you love it here, but that's not your conviction. So you just say, well, that's an area that I'm just not going to make a big deal out. You're welcome to be here and we love you. The same with tongues. You just can't make your issue the issue. We have an understanding that we covenant together to work through. This is very similar to this. When I became your pastor, the Evangelical Free Church allows both paedo-baptism and believer's baptism. That is, they'll baptize infants in some Evangelical Free Churches and they will only do believer's baptism. And when I became your pastor, I explained that, look, I have a strong conviction from Scripture. That we must believe and be baptized. That, that baptism, as many saints have seen throughout history, is an outward confession of an inner reality. Because I put my faith in Jesus, I testify of that through showing that the old man has died and has been raised to newness of life. And I said, friends, I can't baptize uh, someone who hasn't put their personal faith in Christ. And you said, well, no problem. We respect your convictions. And so that's how I'd like us to look through this. Is that Calvary Church is not going to promulgate a charismatic position, but we're not going to push people out who have one. We're just asking that in this area, much like we do with baptism, that we would agree to disagree without being disagreeable. So, with those truths in mind, I hope we're no longer tongue-tied. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus... Please help us to be charitable, even as we attempt to be careful, and biblical. Help us to pursue the greater gifts. Those that edify, not those that divide. Help us to be loving to our brothers with other convictions, without being fascinated by the sensational and seemingly unverifiable. Help us to be open when your spirit is clearly working, and yet always to be a Berean and not fall for every wind of doctrine. Help us, Lord Jesus, to focus on the Gospel. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us, like Philemon says, to be active in the sharing of our faith. Help us, like the Gospels say, to be Your witnesses locally, regionally, and internationally. Help us, Lord Jesus, to make disciples not mischief. To make disciples not discord. And to those good ends, we pray, amen and amen.